And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Let's turn in our hymn books, that red hymn book in front of you to number 32, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Let's all stand and sing, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness, morning by morning, new mercies I see, all I have needed, thy hand hath provided, great is thy faithfulness, Lord unto me. The family welcomes you as we come for this memorial service this day to remember 
Susan Dixon and to, yes, grieve. The sister has passed away and there is a place of grief. But also rejoice because death is not the final victor. Christ is. And that's our hope. I'd like to read to you the obituary for Susan Dixon. After attending Oklahoma State University for three years, she graduated summa cum laude from Central State College, which, as you know, is UCO now. And she taught business education at Northwest Class in High School in Oklahoma City for four years. Susan loved Jesus Christ and her family and enjoyed photography, attending Bible conferences, and teaching women's Bible studies. I remember all the years we'd have the OKCRT here. She would be here even if she couldn't be anywhere else. She would be here. She loved coming to conferences. Uh, Susan is preceded in death by her devoted husband of 59 years, James Thomas Dixon, as we remember just June of last year. He went to be with the Lord on the 3rd of June, 2021. Susan is survived by our two sons and their wives, Drew and Kelly of Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and Kyle and Juliana of Lookout Mountain, Georgia. She's also survived by her six grandchildren and uh, several others as well. I think that the fondest memory I have of Susan myself, just a personal fond memory, was she would unfortunately end up being in rehab and in hospitals because of UTIs and other ailments that would go on. And I remember one time showing up I always carry with me when I visit, I carry with me an old um, Cokesbury Methodist hymnal that I found at a Salvation Army like 30 years ago. And I carried it with me and came in and we're talking. Kyle was there. He may remember this. And we're sitting there with her and talking. And finally I said, well, how about I sing? She goes, well, okay. And so we started singing something. She didn't have a hymn book in front of her. Kyle didn't have a hymn book in front of him. Jim didn't have a hymn book in front of him. But they all just started singing and harmonizing. And I was like, man, this is like heaven. Woo! That's my memories of Susan. I'd go see her. In times when most of us would be in pain and thinking about the pain, and she would, she would just light up when we'd start singing, start talking about Jesus, and start talking about our hope. That's my memory of Susan. And grateful for that memory. So let's turn our hymn books to number 461, Not What My Hands Have Done. And let's stand and sing 461.
passages that Susan one read and you've got one of them listed there in your your program from Psalm 18 I love you O Lord my strength the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer my God my rock and whom I take refuge my shield and the horn of my salvation my stronghold and also Isaiah 45 verses 5 through 7 I am the Lord and there is no other Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the, from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does these things. And then Lamentation chapter 3. Verses 22 through 24. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we are so grateful for the memory of Susan Dixon. We thank you for the times of singing, the times of joy, the times of commitment that we saw that encouraged our hearts. I pray for the family. We pray that you would lift their hearts in the midst of all of this, in the grief, to rejoice in the good memories as they sit around with family and talk and converse. And do you remember when mom did this? Do you remember when dad did that? To lift up their hearts in joy, giving thanks to you that you gave them those memories. We pray, Lord, that you would be our comfort be our hope in the face of death, in the face of suffering, in the face of dementia. Even though, Lord, we may sometimes lose our way, you will never lose us on the way. And so, Lord, be our rock and our help, our refuge. In Jesus' name, amen. Scripture reading is from John chapter 14. If you have a Bible, you'll want to look at it. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6, a very familiar text. Many of you can probably quote this from memory. Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. 
you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you so. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Where I go, you know, the way you know. Mama said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except me. Let's continue to praise God by standing and singing hymn number 646, Jesus, thou joy of loving hearts, 646. Sandy and I moved from Heritage to Las Vegas and 
our church had purchased a, a new building. We looked down and on the Sunday of our dedication, they're sitting in the front row where Susan and Jim Dixon, just to be friends. When our daughter Elizabeth Ann died during birth in May of 1992, Susan wrote us probably the most astounding letter of comfort ever read. But she didn't do that in 1992. She did it again in 1993 on the anniversary of our daughter's death. In 1994, in 1995, in 1996, until her mind slipped away. She understood how to be a friend and encourage. One of the other great endearing virtues was her humility. Susan was a quintessential she never forgot where she was and where she was from. And to be arrogant was outside of her mind. She cultivated a deep contentment with simplicity and lowliness and humility. This was a biblical virtue. She was humble because she's being conformed to the image of Christ. And another one of her great traits and virtues was her obstinate stance for truth. She valued the truth and she wouldn't budge on it for anyone. She hated deceit and word games. She loved the straight truth and would rather hear the hardest truth than the most attractive lie. And another one of her great virtues was her absolute trust in the Word. More than just a trust in the Word, she possessed a deep trust in the Lord Jesus Christ who is revealed in the Word. She saw herself very simply as a sinner who needed a Savior. And so she very easily clung to Jesus and His finished work on her behalf. I could go on. She was deeply appreciative of biblical and reverent worship. She was faithful. She was a sound theologian. But it was as a lover of the Word of God that I so deeply appreciated her. And I know in this moment she would say, Carl, stop talking about me and talking about the Word. So I want to do just that. One of the things that Susan and I had in common for 31 years, I think of times in this room, times down the hall, times in the next room over, Bible studies, prayer meetings, where Susan would hold you to the Word. If you didn't feed her and bring the meat, she would let you know about that. And so I, what a disservice it would do at this memorial service if we didn't preach the Word. So in John chapter 14, the text I just read a moment ago, the, the setting is very familiar to you. It's Thursday night of Holy Week in Jerusalem. There are tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of extra people on hand in Jerusalem for Passover. Jesus has taken his 12 disciples to an upper room. and He's washed their feet. He's assumed the role of a servant. And he's prophesied the betrayal of one of them. Judas has just rushed out into the night. Jesus has given the new commandment to his disciples, the 11 remaining Love one another as I have loved you. And he's directly told Peter, Peter, you'll deny me three times before summer. So then he says those words that all believers know. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house are many mansions. If it weren't so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself. Where I am, there you may be also. So why does Jesus tell the disciples not to be troubled? There are at least three good reasons when Jesus tells them this. First of all, they have a profound fear about the future. Over the last few days of his life, Jesus has been saying things like, 
after Mary just anointed him with perfume, Jesus turns and says to his disciples, she has anointed me for burial. That resonates with the disciples. They're still troubled over that. And then they're troubled over the fact of their own weakness because Jesus has just said to them in the previous chapter, John 13, one of you will betray me. That's trouble. And then there's a third reason why they were troubled. They were, to quote the words of Jesus in Luke 24, they were slow of heart to believe. They weren't the brightest, the most spiritually sensitive men, and they, they recognized that. They were having a, a difficult time believing Christ and His work. So Jesus tells them, let not your heart be troubled. I have a, a biography of a song. It's a classic treatise. It's the history of a song. Some of you may know the song. I listened to this one song all the way on a bus from Greenville, South Carolina to Matamoros, Mexico, and all the way back because I had a group of high school students. It's a song by Bobby McFerrin, Don't Worry, Be Happy. I can sing it for you right now. I heard it hundreds and hundreds of times, and it deals with the history of that song, why Bobby McFerrin wrote it, and it's friendship with Duncan Patty, and Jim would appreciate this because he was in love with Duncan Patty. Um, but how Bobby McFerrin penned this song in 15 minutes at their dining room table. Don't worry, you have it. But what you'll notice in that song, there's really no reason given for why you should not worry and why you shouldn't have it. It's, it's, a, it's an imperative without any reason why. Jesus doesn't do it. I want you to notice, he is talking about what it is that comforts and troubles heart. When Jesus says to the disciples, let not your heart be troubled, he doesn't quit there. He doesn't say, don't worry, we have it. He gives reasons. He doesn't just give cheerful but empty, groundless talk. He doesn't say like we do, Everything's going to be okay. He fortifies the disciples with solid comfort. One of the philosophical schools of thought in Jesus' day was that of Epicureans. Epicureans have kind of gotten a bad rap that they've not been taught truthfully. But they, they were a full-blown worldview and a theology, and their comfort phrase that they would say to one another was, don't worry or be disturbed. The gods take no notice of you. Well, on the contrary, the teaching of Christ is, don't worry. The God who made you, your creator, and the God who sustains you by his providence, does take notice of you. He hears your prayers. He loves you and has provided for you temporally and eternally. So what provision has Christ made for troubled hearts to find peace? Then and now. Listen to these words and start making the connection. Sets forth. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. What he tells them will bring peace to a troubled heart is nothing less than saving believe. But it's a special kind of belief. It's belief in the Father and the Son. Jesus says, Belief in the Father and belief in him is commanded, and biblical saving faith, just to really be pedantic and and have lots of definition. Biblical saving faith always has at least three components. First of all, it consists of knowledge. Real faith, belief that's going to get you through the night. 
has a clear understanding of God's attributes, his sovereignty, his immutability, his, his holiness, his justice, his goodness. It's a clear understanding of God's works, of creation, and providence. A clear understanding of the incarnation, of the sinless conception and birth of Jesus, the sinless life and substitutionary death and triumphant resurrection and ascension. But that's just the first element of real saving faith. What Jesus commands his disciples when he tells them to believe, to pistuo is the Greek word. To believe in God, believe also. Belief doesn't just consist of right knowledge about God. It also consists of assent. I consent that these recorded facts in the Bible are true. I see the veracity of them. Yes, these facts are true. But the third, what makes faith and belief saving faith is trust. Not just knowledge, not just a sin, but trust. I commit myself in belief to the person of God the Father, the person of God the Son. I place my whole destiny in the hands of this glorious holy God. I trust no longer in my own wisdom or self-righteousness. This is the belief that will stop worry and fear and troubled hearts. And it's a distinct type of faith. Listen carefully. Jesus is teaching them a Trinitarian faith. He says the only type of faith that will get you through the night and will get you through troubles is a Trinitarian faith. Jesus is saying a Unitarian faith will not suffice. He demands a living faith in one God existing in a plurality of persons when he says, believe in God, believe also in me. Well, what are they to believe him for? And this is where the part gets really good. He says, as soon as he says, believe in God, believe also in me. And then he tells them, here's what you're to believe in for. In my Father's house are many mansions. They are to believe that Jesus, because of his grace and power and deity, will bring them to eternal glory. Now, when I, I think of what Jesus says here, the night before he goes to the cross, and he's, he's dealing with troubled souls, what he begins to talk about to bring peace to troubled hearts is the expectation of a place. This is fascinating to me. This is what Jesus will do to give them a calm of soul, is to talk about a place. He says, in my Father's house are many mansions. And so he wants to talk about a real place, not a nebulous or ethereal place. I'm astounded by the relative lack of interest in the study of heaven. This is where our citizenship is, Paul says in Philippians 3. This is where we'll spend eternity, yet many absolutely zero knowledge. No perspective, no concept, no longing. I had a conversation a while back with a couple who in the same hour we talked about these two things. These same people wanted to tell me about their vacation they're going to take to go to Hawaii and they're planning to spend a week. And I said, tell me what you've done for preparation. Carl, you spent hours, probably a hundred hours studying books and brochures and planning and dreaming. And within the same hour, we had an opportunity to talk about heaven. And they both said, we won't. Do you get the problem with that? My friends, if that's the place where we are going and going to spend an eternity, doesn't it, doesn't it require a little study, a little thought, a little meditation? And what this tells us is we are far too worldly 
tied to this world. So Jesus brings up, for their comfort, he brings up this discussion of a place, a real place. And it's a fixed place. When he says, in my father's house are many mansions, the Greek word for mansions there is a sturdy word. It's a home fit for eternity, that will, one where you'll stay forever, not a transitory home, not a starter home. Not like now, or according to Hebrews 11, where pilgrims and strangers on this earth. So Jesus tells us about a place, heaven, that has foundations whose builder and maker is God. It's also a place for many. Jesus says, my father's house are, is that glorious world. Many This is not a place with just a few. This, this echoes the great words of Revelation 7, where, where John looks and he says, I saw a great multitude there who no man could number. People from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue. And this, this heaven, just in case you're thinking, oh, it's, it's probably institutional. It's a home. Not a sterile institution, but a warm and inviting house. In fact, look what it's called. My Father's house. Not a dorm or a cell, but the inviting, eternal, dwelling place of a father. The place where you're known best and loved most and always received. Isn't this fitting for a God who makes us his children and adopts us into his family? Then, another thing can be said for this, is this home in heaven is a prepared place. We talk an awful lot as theologians about the finished work of Christ. By that, I resonate with that. I say it as loudly as anybody. And by that, we want to, when we're talking about the finished work of Christ, we're talking about his work of atonement, payment for sin. There is a work that's ongoing. There are at least two great works that Jesus says he's doing. One is, is that he is going to be interceding for you. Always. He ever lives to make intercession for the believer. At the Father's right hand, pleading his finished work for you. The second great work, he tells us right here, he's preparing a place. Jesus stated words about why he's leaving for the purpose of readying an eternal dwelling place with him. He does that first by securing our eternal blessedness by his death and then by his resurrection. How do we apply this word to us on a day like this? Our eyes are filled with tears, our hearts are heavy, your sister in Christ is gone. We make several applications from this text, and hopefully to you, especially to the Dixon family. By this text, we're to learn clearly what it is that we are to put off and put on. There are two imperatives, two commands in this text. The first imperative is this. Don't be part trouble. That's the word of Jesus. He gives us that command. To repent, to worry about the future. And there's a second imperative here. It's actually the primary imperative in this text. And that is to believe firmly in Christ. To repent of any unbelief. To put off all fear and put on faith. These admonitions are not just for disciples in an upper room. But Paul universalizes these same truths when he says, He answers for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. The peace of God surpasses all understanding. Will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. 
another application we should take away from this is we should recognize how dishonoring it is to Christ when we go about fearful about the future, when he's already told us that he's provided for us gloriously. If you're that person who says, but, oh, but I, I need to fret. I need to wring my hands. I need to give myself an ulcer. I need to, to be troubled about things. The shame that brings upon the Lord Jesus Christ when he's provided us all, has told us so, has told us not to be troubled, and yet we still are. My friends, can this God really be believed and trusted? Worry and fear for the soul of unbelief. We must mortify the shock. Another thing we should take away from this text is to see how compassionate and wonderfully loving our Christ is that on the eve of his death, and remember these words are spoken just a few hours before he's arrested and a few more hours before he's crucified and a few more hours before he's dead and in his own tomb. What is on his mind in this moment? He's concerned for others. To love and sacrifice for others. He so deeply loves his sheep. He's so, he's so tender-hearted toward them that he forgets his upcoming pain and agony and focuses on them. Our Christ cares so deeply about his sheep that he wants to comfort them in their afflictions when he's hours away from facing the greatest that's our Christ. Always others oriented. Another application we should hear is no one can find relief from heart trouble who doesn't believe in Christ, believe in the future reality of heaven. This is the only prescription Jesus gives. When he sees that his disciples are heart troubled, he doesn't say, For some of you, you need to believe in me and my promises. But for others of you, I have plan B and plan C. There is no plan B and plan C. If you're worried, if you're troubled, if you're fearful about the future, there is only plan A. Believe in the Father, believe in me. When we consider the death of I believe in others, the waiting of the Son, and the Dixon family losing the Father, and now Mother, and the nine or ten days. If we would be untroubled, we must believe firmly in Christ. Look forward to heaven and revel in the promises. For faith knows that God will never lie to us, leave us, or forsake us. We must repeat these words. Rehearse them and live on this word. We will be reunited with father and mother, with parent and grandparent. I have to speak to believers. Full of fear and trouble. I know what you're looking for. Perhaps you can't even enunciate. You're looking for a home. And that's what everyone A place where you belong, where you're welcome. Don't you long for security and belongings? And I would ask you, do you have a home? It's appointed unto me and wants to die. Well, you have a home where you'll be received and welcome. Made today. Almighty God, Father of mercies and giver of comfort, deal graciously, we pray, with all those who are mourning today. 
Enable them to cast all their cares upon you so they might be consoled. Sovereign Lord, just as we thank you just a few months ago for Jim, we thank you for giving Susan to us as her family and friends. We thank you that you gave us such a companion to know and love in our earthly pilgrimage. So give us faith today to see in death the gate to eternal life so that in confidence we may continue our course on earth until by your sovereign timing we are reunited with all those who have gone before. We pray through Jesus our only Savior. Let's now stand and confess our faith using the form of finding your bulletin. You'll find your bulletin on one page, the question, Heidelberg Catechism number one, and on the back, the answer. I'll ask the question and you'll respond to the answer. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I, body and soul, both in life and death, and on my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil, and so, so preserves me that without the will of the not a hair can fall off my mind head. Yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore, my soul is spirit. He also assures me of eternal life, and makes me sincerely willing and ready and spiritual to live unto him. Let's pray. Join me in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now may the God of all comfort give you rest from your labor, Exchange joy for your tears. Give you peace.